So welcome to Burning Platforms. My name's Peter Lewis. It's great to have you back for this discussion about the big issues in technology over the last two weeks. Joining me is my regular partner in crime, Lizzie O'Shea. G'day, Lizzie. Hi, Peter. Great to be here. And we've got a special um, panellist today from Guardian Australia, Josh Taylor, who has just broken a scoop. And we're going to talk about that in a little while too. G'day, Josh. Yeah, good to be with you. It's actually me. It's not fake. Um, Yeah, well, the pictures tell, although that could work too. We'll talk about that in a sec. And our special guest this week is Shandi Gupta, who is the Digital Policy Director of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. And we're going to be doing the second half of this discussion, diving deep into a report they've put out this week about privacy, which is a really burning issue that we're all exercising our minds on at the moment. But before we do that, the way we like to run these discussions is let's spend the first half hour talking about what's happening in the world and, you know, feel free, Shadvi, to jump in um, whenever. Josh, let's talk about your scoop. I don't know if you have a front page of a website, but it was the splash in The Guardian this morning. Almost tech gonzo journalism in that you and your colleague Nick have gone into the beast of government services and uncovered what can only be described as a a serious security flaw in the way our voice fingerprints work, if that's actually a thing. So do you want to explain what you've uncovered, but also why you went down this journey? So there's been a couple of stories. There was a Vice News report a couple of weeks ago talking about being able to access um, your bank account using a AI clone of your voice as authentication. And we noticed that that was using the Nuance, which is the same provider that Centrelink and the ATO and uh, also there was, I think it's Bank Australia is the other one that we are aware of that uses in Australia. And Nuance is this this sort of voice recognition. So if you've ever used like the Dragon speaking software, then you're probably aware of them. They were acquired by Microsoft in, I think, 2021. We had heard that, you know, it was possible to do this. So Nick went about he recorded about four minutes of his own voice and then found one of those free to use tools online that you can find now to make a clone of your voice and essentially made a clone of it and we weren't sure whether it was going to work there are there are things like um if you probably if you listen to the recording that we've included you can probably hear on the ai version of his voice there's a bit of a american inflection in his voice but for all intents and purposes it does work very well and we tried it on the um he's got a centlink account number he essentially was able to go through the prompts when you call up to send Lincoln and using his, his own number and the fake of his voice was able to get in very quickly. And and I should stress that, that this is the only service that we've been able to do it with. Unlike the ATO and, and uh, a couple of the, the banks and stuff like that, they're using it. They have additional security measures in place. So the uh, the check that, that the ATO and the banks use is is one that happens mid-conversation so they'll they'll get you on the line and while you're talking to them that they will use that to authenticate that you are who you say you are um, that does present some security concerns as well because although you know this this technology is is advancing rapidly but it's still sort of in the early stages it's much harder to replicate sort of a live conversation with someone than it is to have a pre-recorded line talk to a computer but it's not impossible but uh, i should stress as well that nuance and, and service australia and and all the companies that we've sort of been involved saying that they are aware of this being a potential issue and they have sort of detection methods designed to figure out whether they might be being faked with AI. One of the things that they mentioned is like that in that conversation checker thing that they use, they listen to how someone might talk 
and see if it sounds different to how they normally talk. But I don't know it sounds a bit all a bit confusing to me sometimes because at the same time as they're saying that they also account for so like my voice is a bit croaky today because I'm still getting over a cold. But they say that that when you're using voice authentication, it does account for that. So it's it's really unclear about how much we can rely on this as, as an authentication measure, I guess. So let's play thin edge of the wedge. Why should we be concerned about the, the use of this technology if it can be hacked in by an AI? Mm. Well, it, it's basically um, a bit like, I guess it's, it's, it's another sort of layer of, of access. So you will need to have other pieces of information to access someone's account. With Centlink, once you're in, you can you know change people's addresses, um, redirect like certain things, get access to more personal information on there. And a concerning part of that would be like if you have a, um, a violent spouse or something like that, that that knows your Centlink number and wants to to mess around with you I think, and things like that. But I think more broadly, if, if it was to be able to be applied to other services, it is just, it's basically removing that that layer of protection that they have and, and then they can potentially try to access your data or, or change something using other pieces of data. So it's, just, it's basically just one piece of the puzzle, but I think it's just more people need to be aware that it's not this like silver bullet of security and it's not going to replace passwords. It's not going to replace multi-factor authentication. Yeah, Lizzie, how much does this feel like a problem that's been driven by vendors of this big new technology? Yeah, I was thinking about that when we were talking that um, this is sold as somehow superior to other forms of verification and it turns out that's not the case. And I do also wonder how much is this being driven by banks, but, you know, also government who want to cut down on the costs of customer service. Like one thing that sort of occurs to me is that we used to have lots of bank branches where you could go in and you'd literally verify your identity by presenting in person. And of course, it's possible to also defraud that, you know, um, but it requires quite a bit of extra effort. Uh, And it's not surprising to me that these kinds of high-tech solutions are coming about at the time at which those bank branches are being closed or it's impossible really to go into an office, a Medicare office in the way that you used to, for example, to to get a rebate or whatever it may be. Then the, the costs of that are offloaded onto the customer to have to do themselves or the service user. And, you know, one of the things that I bank with a bank and I have a personal relationship with the person at the bank. And I tell you what, it's one of the key selling points as to why I stay with that bank, especially in an age in which people change banks all the time these days. In part Do you bring your can... coins in to get them changed into <laughs> notes as well, Lizzie? <laughs> Um, I know. Yeah, we do have a lot of coins. Uh, I feel like that's a very male thing to collect coins, whereas I don't think women collect coins as much. I don't know. Maybe someone can debunk that theory in the chat. But the point being that a personalized service may be something that people actually want, but clearly these kinds of large businesses, large government departments are cutting back on it more and more. And seems to me to be a bit rich then to offload the potential downsides onto to people to solve themselves when, say, identity theft happens. And I, like the thing that struck me about your report, Josh, was that was, what, four minutes of audio that allowed mm. that to be spoofed. And there's a lot of audio of my voice, your voice, Pete, on like, this is not just like... Um, something that is a remote possibility lots and lots of people now go online you know have recordings of their voice for all sorts of reasons you know on youtube or in a podcast or whatever it may be obviously in a phone call so you know if you've got a direct relationship and and somebody in the case that you mentioned a violent ex-spouse is trying to get access to an account that's one thing but also like generalized hacking it seems like those tools could be easier than ever for criminals to use and just target people who have an online presence without too much difficulty so you know it is a 
a huge potential risk and you do wonder whether the technology can really survive or what's its utility if it doesn't offer that kind of security. It's hard to see it having a use case. And yeah, I I just hope that there's proper protections for people who are required to use it. Yeah, Josh, it, it, The response from the company, I'm interested, but were they just freaking out? Because it seems to me this is a bit like they're saying, oh, we can deal with AI, a bit like the way teachers are saying we can Mm. deal with chat GTP. Isn't the whole model fundamentally broken if an AI can repurpose my incompetence with Zoom into something that would get me, get people access into the back of my bank account? Yeah, so they were a little bit hand wavy and, and not really giving us much to work with when we when we went to comment from them. They they have since since we published the story have come back with a more fulsome response, which we'll probably be putting up now. It's one of those things where I think that they are still of the view that because of the like the entry level that they're trying to get to to actually use this technology to make something like that is still so high for a lot of people that it's just easier for them to for. for potential hackers to just try and find other methods in terms of compromising passwords or phishing attacks and things like that rather than going down this path but i think what the story has demonstrated is that it is something that they need to be alive to and if if we're going to get to a stage i think i was looking up stats this morning and i think a couple of years ago Sendlink was saying that about 50 percent of the calls that they were getting a day or about 10,000 a day were from people who had this voice authentication enabled. So it's a lot of people who are using it. And it's one of the things that I guess that people need to be conscious of if we're going to go down this path of of making biometrics in particular something that people use. And, and like I, was, I talked to Toby Walsh for the article and he was saying that he had to clone his own voice for, for a story that he was doing. And he had he had the same problems that we had in terms of what was the inflection sounding very American. But he said that if you train it up for about a day, it can learn your accent and everything properly so all these things are going to become much easier over time and much more much much quicker to replicate and i don't think we're really ready for it yet (laughs) yeah i might bring shadney in have you got a take on this it just shows we i think businesses they really want to latch on to what's the next thing and and it's it if you compare it to other things on paper it does seem like a far more safer way for their customers to engage because that is so personal to you but what that just shows is when you're running away with with new technology but it hasn't been properly tested whether it's also whether it's been beta tested but then hasn't been actually really looked into well what does that mean how could it potentially be spoofed or how how can someone else use it for inappropriate purposes you end up getting into this stage where things get implemented far sooner than they really really should and we know like with technology they don't like to slow down no one wants to slow down so um, if one slows down there'll be 10 other companies that will come up forward going on a we've got this so either you've got to have an opportunity where as a market you go you really need to think about the risks and and how you're protecting the customers before you go down this path of implementing it more widely and as a business you need to weigh it up with uh with the benefits that you're providing with the customer but also that risk of how quickly I mean, we know what happens when data gets breached we've so many australians have lived through it last year and for this to be yet another data point that scammers can get into um, I, Josh, I can't believe how quickly it can be trained in terms of accent and nuances. It's just getting real more and more sophisticated. I think as businesses latch onto new technology, they really need to have that assessment beforehand of what is it actually delivering and what are the risks and how are we actually going to mitigate that and have that ready. So when someone like Josh is asking them, have, have you got a plan for this? 
there's actually a plan there and not fumbling away going, okay, well, oh, that could be an issue that we could look into. Well, the greatest um, tradition of crisis management, they can have an inquiry. And if it's really bad, an independent inquiry, we haven't quite got there yet. But great journalism from The Guardian as always, Josh, and one to watch as um, you dig deeper into that. So we're going to move on. I reckon the wildest story of the week has been the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank. If you are seeking a stable financial institution, of course, you would go for one that brands itself on Silicon Valley. And I'd, I'd never heard of this bank, but it's the bank of choice for the VC sector, and who would have thought not just for investments, but the classic bank on selling of everything from business banking to mortgages to the whole kahuna. And it grew really quick with the tech boom of the pandemic and everything was going really well until interest rates started to rise. And what's been really interesting is there was a bit of a run on the bank and then the libertarian VC industry started calling on Washington for a bailout because in the finest traditions of um, American capitalism, we privatise the profits and socialise the losses. There's a great analysis of this by Edward Onguizo in Slate, um, and he goes through it in the, in, in the whole frame of the venture capitalist ethos, one of the lines that really struck out to me, and I'll put a link to the chat in a sec. Venture capitalists tout themselves as investors who take on big risks by finding value. They provide capital to entrepreneurs lacking the revenue or credit to get traditional financing, but whose big ideas promise to change the world and make some money along the way. In their self-conception, they would be entitled to white glove service from the federal government in the wake of this massive inconveniencing event. Lizzie, had you heard of Silicon Valley Bank? And what did you make of the cries for help, which I believe were, were circulating heavily on Twitter, where I no longer live? I mean, I had, but I obviously didn't bank with them um, <laughs> for a variety of good reasons. But yes, the calls were, uh, it's, there's a little bit of schadenfreude here because it's obviously extremely satisfying to watch people who constantly lament uh, red tape and, you know, fiat currencies and government then be calling on government to bail them out in this way. And there's a lot of doomsday talk about how it was going to bring down the whole American economy if the Fed didn't guarantee all deposits. And you know, I, I want to get past that shot product because I don't think it's particularly helpful. I do want to acknowledge it because I can't, I don't believe I'm the only one. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> what I did want to say though is I do think that there's been an assumption for a very long time that venture capitalism is the the key to kind of allowing innovation to occur, I suppose, um, or that kind of cheap money uh, is the best conditions for technological innovation to take place. And reflecting back on the last two decades, there's a reasonable argument that that's untrue and then in fact what it's created is kind of lazy forms of innovation, innovation focused only on profit and extracting more from particularly workers in the case of the gig economy without necessarily focusing on the public interest or even the collective social good um, and even in circumstances where that might align with the profit motive and that cheap money really has done us a disservice over the last two decades in terms of technological innovation, crowded out potentially other good innovations um, in favour of ones that are, I think, quite destructive to lots of things that we hold dear as a society and that's worth reflecting on. 
yeah, there's a there's a real question around what what is the role of government. Maybe government should have been uh, investing in in innovation itself rather than leaving it to the private sector. But yeah, the 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 age of the venture capitalists might be coming to an end anyway in this new environment post pandemic where interest rates aren't as competitive. The thing I would say, I guess, to also substantiate that argument that I just put is I do remember reading a profile of Sam Altman. Uh, well, sorry, it wasn't a profile of him, but it was an article that had quoted him a couple of years ago. Sam Altman is one of these people, you know, he's made money funding innovation. He's got a uh, very famous kind of lab for innovators where they can get money to do this kind of work. He's also now heading up the, the company that's created ChatGPT. So it's a very influential uh, figure in Silicon Valley. And he has a throwaway line in this article that I, I found quite galling where he basically points out of the, the investments that he's made, it's pretty much as good as chance which one has worked out. You know, that in essence, there's not a huge amount of skill in identifying what they might call unicorns, very profitable companies at a startup phase. And in fact, there's so many that fail that you may as well just, just pick them out of a hat. Uh, that's not what Sam said. He just pointed out that the chances were about the same as if it was random. And that's pretty telling to me that we assume that venture capitalists feel entitled or they, they claim uh, they're entitled to the kind of profits they generate because of their acumen in working out what to invest in. But it turns out that's probably chance. And when they aren't going as well or when the market conditions aren't as favourable to, to them, they expect to be compensated or looked after. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of sick of these vultures profiting off technological innovation and that it's high time that that it be socialised and that there be government investment in these kinds of programs uh, and allowing that innovation to occur in a publicly sponsored way rather than relying on the private sector to do it. Yeah, Josh, your take on the travails of the the bank of choice of venture capitalists? Well, I I think, yeah, I just get frustrated when they want to make so much money off it and then when it gets really hard, the government has to step in, but the government can't actually then stand to benefit from when they come back either. So I find that very frustrating. I think we'll probably touch on this in a bit, but I think it's probably largely a failure of like, I mean, I'm not super okay with with banking regulation, but I understand that like all the Dodd-Frank regulations that were passed in the Obama era were repealed by Trump and Republicans when they controlled the Congress. That is basically what led to the precipitation. But we, we have this now, the argument immense in the US, it's always rather than looking at what the actual regulation was did, you've got to blame whatever the latest boogeyman is, and that is wokeness and diversity hires and all that sort of stuff. And basically trying to make out that this this bank, this neoliberal bank for venture capitalists was somehow too focused on hiring certain types of people and not on what they were doing behind the scenes, which is a very nice excuse to not actually address the what was basically like these banks and, and lobbying to have their regulations stripped and then going wild and then suddenly finding themselves in trouble. Yeah, and that was the the, the 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 gambit from both Trump and Ron DeSantis on the collapse of this bank was that it, it collapsed because it was too woke, because it had some um, employee affirmative action programs in place. So that's why a bank goes under, because it cares about people. Lizzie, yeah. you are talking today about a bit of a twist. We normally are talking about parents being really concerned about the way that the internet affects kids, but you want to talk about why kids could be concerned about how some of their parents use the internet with them and particularly with influencers. Yes, I think when we talk about online safety, particularly in relation to children, the common paradigm is that parents are there to protect their children and often struggle to know how to do that well. But the reality is that sometimes parents are 
a cause of danger for children, you know, in a variety of different ways. But the one we're talking about today is around parents who are influencers using their children as content. And I've been reading a little bit about this, that there's a proposal in France to limit the rights of parents to do that, to essentially acknowledge parents as people who have a, have a duty to protect their children's privacy, but also then in certain circumstances, taking away that obligation because the parent can't be trusted. And then also potentially uh, giving children access some, to some of the proceeds of revenue that comes from content that they're involved in. I, I am sort of shocked by this. I mean, I, I'm familiar with this problem, but I, when you read the first person accounts of children who've had their entire life commodified, it is pretty upsetting because I think it must be very difficult to be an influencer as an adult. Your whole life becomes this kind of opportunity for content. You feel this constant pressure to commodify every experience and perhaps not participate in it meaningfully at the time. But then when you're a child and your parents become your boss, I think that dynamic is even worse. And as, you know, a psychologist who was quoted, when you're also being humiliated for a viral moment by someone that you're supposed to be able to trust, uh, there's something pretty dehumanizing about that whole experience. And when then your family's income might rely on you continuing to produce content, there's another layer of, of economic dependence that is very difficult to carry, I imagine, as a child. And so it doesn't sort of surprise me that children uh, often have quite resentful relationships towards their parents when they're forced to become part of an influencer family in their youth. Uh, so that that law that's being proposed in, in France, some um, advocates think it doesn't go far enough, but the justification that was put is the the, look, the MP described it as in the following terms. He says that a 13-year-old has an average of 1,300 images of themselves circulating on the internet, which I think is a stunning figure. He also claimed that 50% of photographs exchanged on child pornography forums had initially been posted by parents on their social media accounts. I don't know how you'd verify that, but that's an astonishing statistic if true. And um, recent surveys have suggested, at least in places like, like the United States and, and, and other kind of Western countries that around 3% of parents have profited from content created by their children, which again is a very high figure in my opinion, 3% of parents. So all these things I think are kind of harm that's hidden in plain view and not often talked about. And, and you know, it does give us cause, I think, to question whether parents are the relationship through which we should be thinking about child safety. And in fact, we have to think about children being safe online through other prisons as well and talk about the rights of children, that they have autonomy, but also dignity that needs to be protected. Yeah, Josh, any take on the, it's it's effectively a form of um, child exploitation, I guess. Yeah, I, yeah. My, my kids have never let me near a social media feed with them and I'm uh, <laughs> I see. I see a lot of parents now are very sort of um, holding back on putting their children online, which is very good to see. I think like the, the tide turned on that a few years ago. I think the main thing is like I saw some people sort of comparing it to being like a child actor, but I think it's quite different because if you if you've ever been involved in child acting or something like that, there are so many controls and and mm. and rules and laws in place that sort of govern how often they do it, what they're doing, what they're allowed to do and everything like that. Whereas this is basically a parent controlling what what is putting out there. So it is much more open to exploitation and, and children really don't have sort of a, a say in it as well. So I think we are going to see many, many more of these sorts of stories where kids come out later and say we're exploited and, and this is not what they wanted. But yeah, I think I, th- I think there's probably going to be between that and I think the other thing that that's going to happen with a lot of influencer content is like filming in public and filming people for what, what is basically like poverty porn and things like that. I think that's going to change a lot in the next couple of years because people are sort of getting sick of being made to be in content when they don't want to be.
I'm going to move it on to our deep dive now. And thanks for, for those contributions, guys. So we are in the middle of one of the more significant rounds of legislative reform um, of the last 40 years when it comes to technology, and that's the reviews of privacy laws. There's a bit of a coalition of the willing forming, including Lizzie's organisation and mine, and Guardian Australia is also part of that. But another member of the alliance is the Consumer Policy Research Centre. Shandi Gupta, who is the Digital Policy Director, has been participating in the roundtable, and we thought we'd get her on today because they've put out a paper this week which really goes not just into the laws in front of us, but the whole framework of how privacy should work in the public interest. We'll put a link to that in the chat. Oh, Chandi's just has, but you want to take us through the top line thinking, and then we can kick some of the ideas around over the rest of the show. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Basically, at the moment, the way our privacy laws are set up, they don't work. And they're not there really in the interest of the consumer. If you think about it, really, our privacy laws were set up back in the 80s. And so well before the internet and all our you know, storage capacity was only floppy disks. So the 1,300 photos that Olivia and Josh mentioned of kids is just not something that was a possibility that back then. And yet that's the laws that are currently governed, the Australian privacy process at the moment. What we're seeing is that if things don't change, suddenly we will be in a situation where more and more data is being collected, used, shared, and it's not being done in the way that is meeting consumer expectations. And more and more, it's going to be done towards a business profiting from the data they have, with the profiles they create about you, the way they would understand you, the way they can then target you very specifically for products and services that you potentially may not need or want. And what we've done in this report is look at, well, what is something that we can bring forward as the privacy debate is currently happening? And the way we are thinking about it is what if we start looking at some of the other sectors where there is a form of taking into account the person that you're serving and best interests or a duty of care is what came to mind for us. So looking at how data is collected and shared and used in a way that serves the interests of the consumer and of the community. And we're really keen to see how this actually turns out. So at the moment, certainly the report's not FA complete. We just wanted to initially wanted to get this idea out there and start socializing it more broadly because we really see there's a there's a gap here that we can start filling. And we saw it with the Privacy Act review report that's just come out is that whole idea of best interest. There there is certainly points there within the report where they're talking about the best interests of children. So there's definitely an avenue to start thinking more broadly, where it's not just the best interests of children or those who are vulnerable, but more broadly to best interests of consumers and more broadly the community. We want to be able to see data being used in a way that serves Australians instead of leaves them worse off. So that's the first element of the report. The other side of it, we really want to see a strong regulator. And to be able to do that, they need to have the powers to hold businesses accountable. And so one of the things we've looked at is intervention powers where a regulator can come in more proactively 
to stop harm before widespread harm occurs. And the two models that we've considered are the product intervention power, which currently exists in the financial sector to put in an interim pause on particular products that may be causing harm or are likely to cause harm, and the interim ban framework that's within the product safety laws in Australia. So things do exist at the moment that we could use. That's the, that's the overall, in a nutshell, that is what we are currently working through at the moment. It's really interesting, Shandri, thinking about it in these terms, because maybe maybe you can explain to people what you mean by consumers, I suppose, because it's a kind of loose term. But, you know, like when you think about your rights as a consumer, you, often someone's trying to upsell me a warranty and I'm like, I know what my consumer rights are. You know, I've got a right to get a, if you're selling me a product that's got to be fit and proper for its purpose. You know, there's all sorts of consumer rights, like, you know, fair dealing, things like not being not being able to engage in unconscionable conduct. We've got to strike quite a strong regime for protecting consumers when you're buying and selling things. But that doesn't necessarily translate into how these companies might use your data. It's really only in that, that product relationship. And that often on social media, we're considered the product itself, that we are people that are being served up as part of an audience to advertisers, that actually the general relationship of consumption on a social media platform like Facebook, for example, is between Facebook and an advertiser. And you're you're the kind of third wheel to that. You're just part of the, the process um, of that transaction. And in fact, I think this is a kind of reset towards platforms owing obligations to their users as consumers of that product and that we should be held to a higher standard. And I wonder if that's what what you think, like these these kinds of obligations that we're kind of used to when we're buying and selling normal products ought to then be applied in digital settings or or it's something different it, it is a mixture of that so I agree we have very much become the product that is being sold we are no longer the ones that are consuming we are the ones that are being consumed at um, and so there is that reset that needs to happen in that data space. At the moment, uh, I think most people, but it's not always really clear. When you say something is free, the app is free. Um, using Facebook is free. The Instagram is free. That free is coming at a very high cost at the moment for consumer, for, for individuals who are engaging in that. Um, what can be collected about you? Imagine even, even when you're trying to make a booking, for example, to a restaurant and you randomly get asked about your date of birth why um this idea that you're being information is being collected about you that's unnecessary for the actual product or service that is actually being delivered that mindset needs to change at the moment it is very much about how much data a business could potentially collect. And there's a lot of data hoarding. I mean, we saw that in the data breaches that took place last year. There were people who had only ever asked for a quote months, even years ago, and their personal information was with those organisations that then went through the data breach. It's that model of, well, we'll just... We'll just collect it because we can. Um, that's really a mindset that needs to reset and, and shift. And you're right, we do have laws at the moment, the unconscionable conduct, the misleading and deceptive conduct, but those, the threshold of those is quite high. And especially in the data space, I don't even think they come anywhere near near that. As part of our, uh, this is a very shameless plug, but as part of the Privacy Act work, the other side of the work that we're trying to do is bring in an unfair trading prohibition in Australia. That's what we'd really like to see. The Privacy Act, uh, reviewing it, updating it, getting strengthening it will do one thing, but 
together with an unfair practices prohibition, you'd actually end up achieving uh, something far more stronger. And one that Australians very much deserve. Uh, other jurisdictions like the US, uh, the EU and all already have it, and they utilize it when things kind of slip through some of those other specific laws. They use their unfair commercial practices directive and they use their really strong privacy laws to be able to um, bring about change in those businesses. And we'd like to see that happening more in Australia as well. Yeah, it's a really interesting development because, you know, one of the ways that consumer protection was destroyed, particularly in this state, around antitrust was the whole doctrine that the only interest was a lower cost. And of mm. course, with free data or so-called free data, there is nowhere to go. So I think broadening out the notion of the consumer to their broader existence as a citizen is really interesting and probably a little bit challenging for the traditions that consumer rights movements have come from as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you, yeah, there's a really fascinating example of in the UK where due to the current cost of living crisis, you've got uh, supermarkets who are providing loyalty cards, specific loyalty cards, um, and the the actual product becomes cheaper if you use the loyalty card. And then when you've gone down the path of seeing what, when you have that loyalty card on as an app on your phone, how much it's tracking about that consumer, it's almost like you are, it, it is very much privacy poverty. So you are then going, here is all my information, do what you need to do with it so I can get the, get the actual product at a lower price. And that's quite frightening that if we don't end up getting to a situation where we are holding businesses accountable and where we are actually obligating them to do good with their data instead of finding ways to cause harm or to profit on vulnerability, we will be at a point where we, were, we are going to really end up having individuals really suffering. And so that is something we, we don't want to be seeing. And this is, this is the opportunity to get businesses to really have a deep look at how are they collecting the data? What are they using it for? How long are they keeping it for? And then when they are making decisions based on them, how is it impacting not just the person whose data is involved in that in that set, but how is it actually impacting others in the community that are also impacted by those decisions? I think there's a real mindset that just needs to shift. It, um, and we'd really like to see that. And I'm sure there's businesses out there that are actually doing it right now, but we need to be able to have it enshrined in law so that it is actually your first and foremost thinking that you do when you get get into the business of collecting people's personal information. So how do you sort of deal with business? I, I can see this is going to be the pushback from businesses when the Privacy Act changes come in. It's going to be, it's too expensive. It's too much effort. It's going to cost us so much money. How do you sort of, I guess, respond to that in, in a way that, mm -hmm. is it something that they need to be thinking of at the start before they start collecting it? Or is it something they overhaul their entire business model, essentially? It's certainly about them thinking about their business model overall, but it's that we need to think about the counterfactual. What is the cost for not doing it? And so at the moment, uh, if we let things go the way they are, the, the harm that will be created for the individuals is far far greater than a business rejigging and rethinking it, their business model. And the other thing is, if it's enshrined in law, 
everyone's then on the same playing field. At the moment, it is literally a spiral down to the bottom of the barrel who can collect the most data, use it in ways, get to know, really create specific profiles and, and sell people what they either uh, may not or want or need. But when everyone's on a playing field, you'll end up creating this environment where every business is obligated to do good um, instead of only the only the ones who are thinking that way and then therefore not being able to profit from it and then saying, well, we, this is not a model that's sustainable. An example of this is actually the, the New York Privacy Act has a data fiduciary duty built into it. And it specifically says that the use of data, when you're weighing it up with the individual's interests, with the business interests, the individual's interests have to come first before the business interest. So, so it's not that there isn't precedence there. Yes. So before I go to Lizzie, um, Dylan's got a question, as he often does. G'day, Dylan. Isn't that a good thing? People effectively being paid for their data in the form of discounts. Oh, I, I, it's... It's really tricky because I don't think people really understand what they are paying, what they are giving up. Um, so the, it's that giving up of a... You, I think about the privacy policies and the terms and conditions I have seriously have not been able to read all of all of the ones that I have apps and others linked to but think about it most of them are 90,000 words are consumers really reading that and actually looking at what are they giving up and the kind of information they're giving up their consent is often bundled and so you've there's no way of consumers to know exactly what's being given up and what the harm will be laid down the track and so Consent and notification have a place in our Privacy Act. There's no doubt about it. But you need to have baseline safeguards in place and some things will just never be okay. And if the interests of the individuals and the community are always put at the forefront, then any other transaction that might happen might actually end up delivering far better, it will deliver far better outcomes than what we've got at the moment. Oh, see, I find this argument hilarious because on one level, it's just like, well, you should be able to do anything in a marketplace if you're getting paid properly for it and you're informed and aware of what the consequences are. And I just don't think that's the world that we live in. Like we don't, we create, we set limits all the time. We don't allow people to sell unhygienically um, prepared food, for example, at a really low price. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously <laughs> uh, there's illegal products, but like we have a food safety authority that prevents those kinds of transactions happening, even if people consented to them, because we understand that there needs to be a baseline level of food safety and we expect uh, people to intervene into the market, regulators, and there to be a threat of enforcement so that people with reduced food comply. Like it, we, we do the same, we regulate doctors, we regulate lawyers. We don't say, oh, you don't need a dental qualification, you can get free dentistry down the road from someone who's just who's just learning. Like, you know, like there's all sorts of limits we set on people's consent because we understand there's a social consequences if we allow, you know, people who are poorer to be able to consent to things that they say they want, but, you know, in reality we we think that maybe a function of poverty rather than their own free will, and, and that's a legitimate 
um, I think, limitation on freedom of contract. And, and you know, I think the reality is that privacy law or um, information transactions have been governed primarily through contract. And it's quite clear that doesn't work anymore, that there's specific kinds of vulnerabilities that need to be protected against, that as a society, we don't think that the market for information that's been created is a good one. It, it bleeds into all other, lots of other social functions that we engage in, public participation and the like, are affected by that free market for information, that, that contractual relationship has to change and so I have have very little truck for that kind of argument I think it's kind of silly but I yeah that's just me I mean what I was going to ask you about Shanti is that it's one thing to talk about businesses in this way but one of the biggest consumers of data and on the, the kind of terms that you're describing is also government you know what comes to mind when you talk about people you know, having to use loyalty cards to get discounts is also people who need to get access to welfare, having to hand over huge amounts of personal information. You know, Virginia Eubanks has this great book called Automating Inequality, and she talks about the digital poorhouse where you've given amounts of information over to the government. So you're more likely to come into contact with them again if you've already been in contact with them and they collect more and more data about you, they police you. Robo debt being an obvious example of how that can be weaponized against poor people. And I, I wondered if you had any thoughts on that, because I would hope, you know, obviously privacy reform will likely at least at this stage affect both businesses and government but you know when government leads with some of the worst uses of personal information and and being the most extractivist it's it's no wonder that businesses are also encouraged to do the same it's so true i feel like it's almost like one thing at a time (laughs) so we'll we're at a point where let's let's get businesses accountable but in that process naturally government will need to be accountable as well and one of the things is in the privacy act they've talked about privacy impact assessments and how important that will be going forward to hold businesses accountable on how they on any kind of new uh, database practice that they might be implementing ideally you'd like to be seeing that in government as well and i know it occurs in some places but to make sure that not that part of it with government is not only that it's done, but it's independent, it's effective, and it's transparent as well. Those those kind of obligations will be really important going forward to hold governments accountable. So we don't end up getting another robo debt experience happening. We want to be able to you want to be able to trust your data both with government, who ideally you're sharing the data for them to find better outcomes for you, and if a best interest was there at right at the onset then that's something not only businesses would have to consider, but government as well. That if we're using this data in the robo-debt scenario, ideally what should have been happening is that you've got this data, you've got human oversight over it as well, and then you would have been saying, okay, we're about to, to ask for money, but let's look at what what is it that that is actually going on? How can we actually support the person on the other side. I think if that mindset needs to shift completely, whether it's a business or government, and you'll end up having uh, a far better model that actually serves Australians going forward. All right. Well, let's talk Turkey because the rubber is hitting the road. There's two metaphors in one sentence. Sorry about that. But the privacy paper is out. It's kind of end game in the reform process. You guys have injected this into the bait. Some would say at the 11th hour. How aligned do you think the current government paper is to where you would like to see it going? So where where I feel like there's a wedge at the door, but it's a slight little opening, is because I've already started thinking and talking about best interests for children. So there is already an understanding there that there, is, there, are, there needs to be baseline safeguards built in. 
the other side of it is fair and reasonable test that's also been brought in as part of the model. And what you'd like to see is that best interest. So twofold, best interest gets expanded to not just uh, that of uh, children, but also individuals and community at large. So broadens that further. And then when it comes to the fair and reasonable test, the reasonability at the moment, it's very easy for reasonability to be, well, as I think Josh raised this point earlier where businesses could go, well, this is really expensive and it's actually not reasonable to do that. Like, so all of those kind of that within reasonable measures we did this is to really start thinking about having an element of care and safety built into the reasonability part. So, yes, this might feel like a bit of the eleventh hour, but it's going in the right direction. We've got spaces there for them to be able to really expand and clarify what fair and reasonable will look like and how much of a baseline safeguard there needs to be in order for that to work. OAIC, I can see in the actual Privacy Act, OAIC has been delegated a few different places where they will have to provide guidance. So yes, this might be at one point, but going forward, there could be a way to also build in some of that best interest through the guidance that will get developed as the legislation passes. Josh, is this on the agenda at the moment as far as the fourth estate's concerned? Is the, is the privacy changes there or is it way off in the distance? I think it's something that, that at least us, uh, we are focused on. I think last year, the combination of the Medibank and the Optus hacks focused a lot of people's attention onto privacy for the first time in forever. As I think I've said on, on this before, it's something that a lot of people have been banging the drum about for years and years, and then Optus and Medibank kind of made people actually pay attention. Whether that lasts is another thing entirely. I think we're starting to get back into a kind of a, a bit of a phase. And I, and I was that was one of the things I was thinking of. It's like, it's all well and good to say, people need to be educated and have informed consent. But when you when you still have a situation where for a large section of the population, they're just like, oh, well, all of this data is out there already. I don't really care. I can't really care. And they're not going to really tune into that sort of thing. That makes it much harder. But I think, you know, as part of my job and I think as, as sort of this, this debate goes on, we'll probably start to see, I guess, more coverage of it as it sort of keeps going. Mm. I think the other thing is like, we'll see cases pop out of this. I mean, I know we'll immediately see in the next couple of months slash a year outcomes from the Optus and Medibank investigations and that will, but they'll probably spur mm. the argument along a little bit more and, and, and I guess focus people's attention. But I reckon it, <laughs> unfortunately, it's like, it's only when we're going to have these big cases that, that people are going to actually start paying attention to, to how their data is being used. I hate to the, break the, it to yeah, yeah, I don't think it's going to be long before we mm-hmm. we get another breach. Part of the reason is as well, like it's not as though there's clear guidance for listed companies as to who's mm. responsible for these kinds of issues. Like there, there's now some greater fines in place, but part of what I think this reform process can do is, is sharpen the minds of boards around the country to say, well, maybe we need to rethink how we structure our databases, what we hold, what we collect. Maybe we can start to delete um, rather than just hoard and use, you know, and that I think will be a a positive upshot of privacy reform. I was going to just put in a quick pitch to say that if if anyone does want to make a submission, we've made it really easy for you. We've got a a link on our website to standard form submissions. There's the link I've pasted in the chat is actually uh, guidance for what we think about the proposals put forward by the Attorney General's Department, what the message we want to send to the Attorney General, which is that he should be bold on privacy reform. This is the time. It's a once in a generation opportunity. Here's a chance to update us to get us in line with lots of other similar countries. But if you, you don't have time to write your own, which it would be understandable, you can also... Lizzie will write it for you. 
Yes, there's a standard form one there. Um, or you can you can do whatever you like. We've got the lots of details. We really just would encourage people to make submissions because I think it is the common refrain that I hear from the media is that people don't care about privacy. They expect it to be dead. And when I talk to lots of groups of people, it's just clear that's untrue, but it's trying to knock that assumption on its head. The best way to do that is to, to make some kind of submission. So I'd encourage you to, to look into doing it in one way or the other. Yeah, and, you know, there is going to be a pretty strong pushback even on the reforms as they stand. We know that there'll be big media companies that are opposed to this, big tech companies that are opposed to this. There are the small business exemptions that we were talking about before, which the small business lobby will be against and public interest will only be expressed by the public. And that's where um, the submission process is probably as much a game of quantity as quality, just to let the government know people do care about this and not just when their Medibank account gets hacked. Hey, we're up to the hour. Thanks everyone for being part of the discussion today. Really great. Um, If you want to listen to it again, it'll be up as a podcast early next week. Josh, thanks for your time, mate, and terrific work as always with with your reporting and we look forward to seeing what you come up with next and Shandy we'll see you later this afternoon at the Privacy Roundtable but thanks for your work as well and thanks for your contribution today. Lizzie thank you as always and have a great weekend everyone.